0: We get riots in the streets, you get demonic forces, you get assassination attempts, we get classic courtroom drama, and we get a shipwreck right towards the end. Um, And all of this is going on as the gospel goes out. And that's what's being described to us here in the book of Acts. It's actually a record of the events of what went down as the first bunch of followers of Jesus Worked hard and strained to get the gospel out and share it. This is really helpful for us, particularly I think, as a church, as a relatively new church plant. We're only two and a bit years old, so we're still a two-year-old church, a little baby church in effect. Um, It's really good for us because when you when we start new churches like this, and particularly when you can see God at work in them, growing people and bringing new people to faith, it's exciting. Um, it feels new, sometimes it even feels a bit brand new, it feels like a, a radical approach. I don't know if some of you are having those types of feelings but the reality is, the truth is, what's happening here among us in Anchor Church has been, is not a new thing at all, it's actually been happening among the followers of Jesus since day dot, well since the day Jesus rose again from the dead. Eyeballed his first followers and said, Go and make disciples. This is what's been happening. Christians have actually been excited enough about the gospel to sacrifice and strain to see the gospel go out and planting new churches. That's what's been happening for 2,000 years now. So there's nothing new going on here at Anchor. It's exciting, but this is what our brothers and sisters who have gone before us have been doing for 2,000 years effectively so that here we sit in 2022 with the gospel of Jesus. It's come to us and it's saved us. And now is our chance to continue the mission of Jesus and keep holding it out. We sit in a long line of history, friends. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of what's gone before you? Can you be encouraged by what's gone on before you? Because that's what the book of Acts has has the capacity to do. It's got the capacity to encourage us and to strengthen us and to actually give us focus and actually help us clarify why we exist and what we're doing this for, it's really helpful. In the book of Acts, you get chapter after chapter after chapter, the gospel, which is just the news about Jesus, the message about what Jesus has done that is able to save and forgive. We get the gospel converting people and changing people. As it continues to go out and what we see in the book of Acts is that there's no group of people um, who are out of reach of the gospel there's there's no type of person who doesn't need the gospel of Jesus and I'll give you a little glimpse of the kind of groups it all kind of begins in Jerusalem the book of Acts with some faithful Jews God followers um, in Jerusalem and they get converted by the gospel and even some of their leaders, so you get priests and Pharisees being converted by the Gospel. But it's not just them, you've, you've got crippled people on the streets getting converted, you've got the demon-possessed getting converted, you've got slaves in households getting converted, you've got a eunuch from Africa getting converted, you've got the Samaritan half-breeds getting converted, you've got the God-fearers that are just hanging on the edge of the temple getting converted by the Gospel. And then you've got your full-blown pagans who are miles and miles away from following God they're the ones that are worshipping idols they're getting converted and even the intellectual philosopher type pagans are getting converted you've got government officials getting converted the gospel is for everyone there's no group of people that don't need the gospel There's no type of person that doesn't need to desperately be saved by Jesus. And what that means is it's the same for us today. There is no person alive on the Coffs Coast. There is no group of people, you know, upwardly mobile or struggling, that don't desperately need the gospel. Every people group around us right here needs the gospel. You need the gospel. I need the gospel. Everyone needs it. We come across a particular group here at the beginning of chapter 19. We actually get introduced to them at the end of chapter 18 and it's a, it's a unique group. It might be a bit unfamiliar to you. It's a group of people who you would call the disciples of John the Baptist. Now you might go, oh, okay, yep, I know who they are. Others of you might think, I don't know what that group is. Um, we need to understand what that group is and, and see what it means for them to be converted and then see how it might apply to us. Um, The disciples of John the Baptist were the ones who basically went and, and, and followed John the Baptist or followed the teaching of John the Baptist. And you could argue John the Baptist was like the last Old Testament desert prophet. Yep. Out in the wilderness dressed in camel skin, eating locusts, you know, classic Old Testament desert prophet, and the people would come to him in the wilderness, they would accept his teaching and they'd be baptised as followers of John the Baptist. You could argue that all the people that were going out to him were, were actually really close to the Gospel because it's all the faithful Jews from the surrounding area, the ones who'd been following God and wanting to listen to the prophets that were coming out to John the Baptist. These are faithful, God-following people who were looking forward to the Messiah who became disciples of John the Baptist. So you could argue that this group of these disciples of John the Baptist were actually really close to becoming Christians, but they were still yet to really get it. You could almost call them almost christians i've heard them described that way before they're almost christians they're so close but they haven't got jesus yet they've got the concepts of god and following him and being faithful and they understand sin and they understand that there's the one to come but they're yet to put their trust in jesus but they're so close and so what we see in acts is the gospel going out to people who are miles away and the gospel going out to people who are so close And it doesn't matter how far you feel like you are, you need the gospel. And and this concept of an almost Christian, I I wonder whether that might resonate with you a little bit tonight. I, I wonder whether you might be honest enough and even humble enough to ask yourself the question and acknowledge that maybe that's you. Maybe you're an almost Christian. I think you need to be pretty humble to acknowledge that kind of thing. You might be the kind of person that's pretty familiar with the ways of Jesus. You might, you might say, yes, I believe in God and I've been trying to live as a Christian. And maybe some of you have been doing that for many years. So you might even look the part. You might, you might look like a Christian, but you might still be an almost Christian. Now, you might even be a little bit offended that I'm even suggesting that right now. Um, but it's important for us to consider. One of the things I want, to, I want you to do tonight is not think about someone else in your life. Isn't that the first thing we do? You start thinking about, oh yeah, I think he's an almost Christian and she probably. Now I want you to think about yourself because this is the work that we are to do in the Scriptures is, is to think about how this applies to us. And I want you to know this, our greatest concern here at Anchor is not just that people would come and live a Christian type of life, even though that's a wonderful type of life to live, you know, and it's part of what God's got for us, you know, following the way of Jesus. Our greatest concern is not even that you would just feel connected. That's not our greatest concern. It's certainly part of being a Christian is to be part of community and learning how to love each other and it's awesome to feel connected. But that is not our greatest concern here, that you get friends, that you feel close. Our greatest concern is that you would come to genuine belief in Jesus. Our greatest concern is that you would be a real Christian. Yeah? Someone who has accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour. Someone who has an has deep assurance of forgiveness and a future with God. And someone has serious hope in the present because you're confident the Holy Spirit lives in you and that is what empowers you to live this life and change and grow. That's what we want to have happen here. And we want that to happen over and over again over the months and the years under God that he would use our efforts so that we would just see a whole sea of people in the future, an increasing amount of genuine disciples of Jesus who have a saving faith and are excited about what we've got in him and enjoying him and are willing to sacrifice greatly to see the gospel go out because we know there's nothing more important. That's what we want to see happen. And, and and it starts with you, considering where you're really at, what you've really got and making sure you have confident, confident that you're not an almost Christian, that you actually are an authentic, real Christian. And I'm going to give you the chance at the end here, I'd be silly not to, wouldn't I, to actually pray and actually become one. If you catch a suspicion that you might not be there yet. And, and again, I say, this is hard work. Like, you know, you've you got to be pretty humbled to admit that that's what's going on, particularly if you've been around church things for many years. But there's no better work to be doing than the real honest work of the heart. Yep. Let's have a look at chapter 19, the first few verses. What we're seeing here... Is the Apostle Paul who's been doing a couple of laps of the Gentile world sharing the gospel he's on his second lap or third lap depending on how you count them and he's now actually traveling like as a missionary church planter he's a serial church planter the Apostle Paul and he travels to these places preaches the gospel sets up a church and then off he goes to another location and he's and he's doing a few extra laps to go around and check on the churches to check on the believers, to make sure that what's still being preached in those churches and taught in those churches is the gospel, because things often stray. And Paul comes at the beginning of chapter 19 here back to Ephesus. And when he comes to Ephesus, he comes across these 12 men. They're described there in verse 7, there were about 12 men. So somewhere around that mark, there's a group of fellows and and Paul has an interaction with them that we don't really know about, but he's, he's got a concern about them because he asked them a pretty confronting question. Look at verse one. While Apollos was at Corinth, we'll come back to Apollos in a minute. Paul took the road through the interior, arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So he comes across this group of men or people and he refers to them as disciples and he refers to that they've come to believe but he's concerned for them um he he, he's noticed something that's a problem among them and we don't know what he's noticed but we know that he was concerned enough about that there's something lacking in their belief or something lacking in their understanding of what a Christian is, or something missing, that it causes him to ask this question, which I would call a confronting question, you know, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Like, I think that's a kind of a hard question to pose at someone. You risk offending a person when you're asking them, are you sure you got the Holy Spirit when you came to believe? But for Paul, he's willing to risk offending a person because there's much too much at stake in all of this. Again, we don't know what he's observed, but he's observed enough to want to press in and ask hard questions. It's it's clear that for Paul, he doesn't just want to make almost Christians, he doesn't want to just get this crowd of followers who think he's awesome. He wants to make real, genuine disciples. He wants people to really follow Jesus and know what it is to be saved. Paul doesn't want to just help people feel good about themselves and sometimes in church we can fall into that habit of just wanting to encourage each other because we we want people to feel loved and known and so sometimes you can pick up on something in a in a brother or a sister but you can hold off on saying anything because you just I don't know you don't want to offend them. Well Paul's the kind of person who cares enough about a person's eternity to risk offending. I mean Back in chapter 18, you looked at it last week, Paul uses some pretty extreme language when the people he's speaking to don't want the gospel of Jesus. He says, your blood be on your own heads, which is a pretty full-on thing to say. So for Paul, to reject the gospel of Jesus or just dismiss it is to bring your own blood on your own head. That's going to bring judgment on you for an eternity what matters more than anything else is whether a person genuinely comes to trust in the gospel of Jesus and if they politely put it aside or just politely keep it at an arm's distance you ought to be concerned for them we ought to be concerned for them people need to accept Jesus when Paul asked them this question how do they answer it Uh, they answered uh no we've not even heard about the Holy Spirit that's an interesting response but they're just being really honest. They're saying, no, we don't have this Holy Spirit. And they say, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think it's highly unlikely they never even heard of it. I think it's a little bit of hyperbole there because if they were faithful Jews who'd become followers of John the Baptist, they would have known of the Holy Spirit and at least right throughout the Old Testament and how the Holy Spirit was used to anoint kings um, and prophets at least. So they would have known of the Holy Spirit. And if they were, and if they really were disciples of John the Baptist, they would have heard John the Baptist talk about the Holy Spirit because John the Baptist just kept pointing forward to the next fella who was going to come. And he said, look, the baptism I'm giving you is one thing with water, but the guy after me is going to come and he's going to baptise you with the Holy Spirit. So they would have heard of the Holy Spirit. I think it's likely what they're saying here is, look, uh, we haven't got it. We didn't even know you could get it. That's probably what they're thinking what's this all about? So they're being really honest and humble and open which is awesome because that's what can lead to change. They say they've never heard of it. Um, You read on in verse 3, Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they answered. Now when Paul says to them, what baptism did you receive? He could be asking them, yeah, who actually baptised you? but it's likely what's beneath baptism that Paul's asking them about. You see, in the ancient world, and particularly in Judaism, baptism was used by any rabbi to baptise your followers. Any, anyone who was one of the ones who learnt from you, where you're the teacher, you would baptise them into your framework of teaching. And so when Paul's saying to them, um, what, what baptism did you receive? It's likely he's saying, what, what, what belief have you got here anyway? Like, what's the foundation... Of what you're believing for here. That, that's what he's asking them. And they say, Oh, John's baptism. In other words, we're just followers of John the Baptist's teaching. That's all we've got. That's all we've got. And Paul goes, Oh, I can see what's happened. Yeah, you haven't become Christians yet. Because John the Baptist's teaching was true, but it was limited, it wasn't the gospel. John the Baptist's whole role was really to prepare people for Jesus, that they would come to trust in him and that's the gospel. In fact, Paul actually, or it might even be, I think it's Luke quoting Paul, describes what John the Baptist's teaching here is and you can see it in two parts. Have a look at it there in verse 4, Paul explains it. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So just pause there a little bit. Really what John the Baptist was bringing people into was primarily repent of your sin. So everyone who's coming out to John the Baptist and actually being incorporated into his framework, basically their, their, their main framework was like, I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to try and live a godly life. And that was it. And there might have been an understanding of how sin offends God. And there might have been an understanding of how there's judgment coming for your sin. But that was it. It was just a, you might call it this, a turning away from sin to try to live a good godly life. That's all they had. Now, John the Baptist's teaching also went on from that. As you look at the next little line, it says, he told the people to believe in the one coming after him. So that was the other part of John's teaching. It was like, turn from your sin and get ready for the one who's coming after me. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He's the one who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. But that was the guts of John the Baptist's teaching. So all the disciples of John the Baptist were people who had simply decided they didn't want to sin anymore. They wanted to live a good godly life. And they want to keep their eye out for this next bloke who's to come. So they don't yet have the gospel. In this moment, Paul would have explained who this next guy was. And I think that's what those next four words are there, where it says the one coming after him, that is Jesus. I think Paul leans in there and goes, oh, that's what they need to hear. They need to hear the details of who Jesus is, what he's done, and they need to come to him. Because they obviously had not done that yet. Can you see the problem here for the disciples of John the Baptist? Can you see why they're only almost Christians? Now, you might be able to see it really clearly. Others of you might say, what's the problem? I don't see what they're missing. And it might be because you're still in that place yourself. Do you think Christianity is simply about turning from sin and deciding to live a good, godly life. Because if that is the whole of what you think Christianity is, you're in this category with the disciples of John the Baptist, you're an almost Christian. You've got half the truth, but you're limited in your belief. You need to move on and get the whole deal. They'd turn from sin, but they are yet to turn all the way to Jesus and receive him and you know when Paul went on to explain this Jesus what he would have said is "Oh, okay the one to come here's what you need to do the Messiah has come his name is Jesus and here's what he did he went willingly to his death with your sin on him and he died with it and rose again to show that he had the victory over your sin And he now offers you forgiveness from your sin and that he would come and live in you by his Holy Spirit to help you live this new life. There's the gospel. And that's what Paul would have gone on to explain to them. You see, these disciples of John the Baptist were yet to experience forgiveness. They were yet to experience relationship with God restored by the forgiveness that's offered through the work of the cross. And they were yet to receive the Holy Spirit to empower them for this whole new life. They were almost Christians. Now, I don't know what the modern-day equivalent of a John the Baptist disciple is, um, or what the modern-day equivalent. I think there's lots of versions of an almost Christian, by the way, and, and I'm just making up that term, by the way, to help get this concept across. I think the classic equivalent is, is just very similar to this and that is the person who's decided they don't want to sin anymore, they want to try and live God's way. Are you a person who's decided you want to try to live like a Christian? Is, is, is that the guts of what's going on for you here? Like, all right, I'm hearing about this Christian life, apparently that's what I need to do and I think I need to do it, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work hard with all the strength I've got to try to live like a Christian. I'm going to take on the morals. I'm going to take on the values. Maybe that's you. It might even be that you've been converted to church in some sense or converted to Christian morals or Christian values, but you're yet to be converted to Christ in your heart. You're yet to meet him and receive him and get from him forgiveness, relationship, assurance and empowerment for this life that you know you need to live, which is what the Holy Spirit brings. And if that's you, and it might be all of us to some extent that you drift into that kind of works-based righteousness. You're trying to make yourself right with God or live a right life all in your own strength. If that's you, you might even look the part And people, if you've been doing that for many years, chances are Christians have patted you on the back many times and said, thank you, you're wonderful, you're helping me, you're helping others, and and you live the Christian life very well. But chances are, if that's where you are, it, it will lead to either pride or despair. Do you notice that in your life? It leads to pride when you feel like you're doing it, when you feel like you're nailing the Christian life. You're like, I know how to get to church. I know how to do Bible study. I know how to do this and that. I know how to love people. And and you might go through seasons where you feel like you're nailing it and you're left feeling proud that you're not like those people that struggle, you know, and you're feeling proud about your own efforts. Self-righteousness either leads to pride or despair. It leads to despair when you keep struggling with the same sins over and over again and you feel like you're not changing. And in your own strength, you realise it's not enough and you despair. That's where being an almost Christian will lead you. If you're an almost Christian, you'll go through any given week, some days feeling like you're a Christian, other days not being sure that you are. You'll flip in your confidence or assurance that you really are one because for you to be one is to live the life well. And so when you're not feeling like you're living the life properly, you're like, oh, well, I'm not a Christian today. And I've, and I've heard it come out of people's mouths so many times. It's like, well, I'm, yeah, I am, but I'm not a very good one. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a... I'm a Catholic, but I'm not a very good one or whatever. Is it possible to be not a very good Christian? If you really are a Christian, in the end, it's not about how good you are as one, because once you get the gospel... You see that the way God sees us now is righteous because of his son. Yeah. But maybe this is you still. You're not there yet. And if you've got a suspicion you're not yet there yet, you're not okay. Yeah. You're still under the condemnation of your sin. You're not freed from it and forgiven of it. Here's what you need to do. And I'm going to use my body to try to illustrate it in an appropriate way there's nothing weird about that. um here's jesus i'm going to put him on this side yep um and here's the way of sin the opposite way of following god um an almost christian is someone who has been in the past walking away from god not wanting god even if it's just subtle But you're going your own way, you're rebelling, you're rejecting, you're sinning. And an almost Christian is a person who's done this. They've gone, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to walk away from God anymore. I don't want to keep wrecking my life and other people's lives. And I think it offends God as well. So I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to turn away from the way of sin. I'm going to repent. And they turn here. Away from sin... But can you see there's a bit of the turn that's still left to go? You've come halfway. You've moved away from sin, but you haven't continued to turn all the way to Christ. A real Christian, someone who's come to authentic, saving faith, is someone who's turned away from sin and then turned the whole way to Jesus. To face Him, to see Him, to to believe in what he's achieved on the cross and that it's for you and to accept that and to believe that and receive forgiveness for that and restoration with God for that, and to have him come and live in you by his spirit, that's that's the full turn. Did that help for, Did that helpful with my body? You know? And almost Christian hasn't turned all the way. Did you, have, have you come to Jesus? Are you facing him? Have you received the gospel? Salvation, forgiveness, redemption, restoration, adoption. There's so many more words in Ephesians, but have you got it? Have you got it all? Yeah? Ezekiel chapter 36 gives you a sense of this concept of the new age of the Spirit and how salvation works. This is what's promised way in advance. Um, God says, I'm going to take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. Is that too small or can you see that? Look at this next line here. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. There, friends, is a description of forgiveness. This is what God's always promised to do, to cleanse you, which is to remove your sin and forgive you. And then on top of that, he says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, which is receiving the Spirit of God. And look at one of the key impacts of receiving the Spirit of God. I'll put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. One of the evidences of having the Spirit is actually all of a sudden you find yourself with desires to follow God with desires to obey him because it honours him and you love him and you have affection for him. You're forgiven and you're given a new heart that actually really wants to honour God and follow him. It's beautiful. Have you got that? Now, these disciples of John the Baptist didn't have it. But after Paul points that out and then preaches Jesus to them and what's on offer, they receive it. And they, they move from being disciples of John the Baptist to becoming disciples of Jesus. Look at verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I'll pause there for a little bit. It might be. It might be that in this moment, Paul actually baptised them in the name of Jesus. However, it might simply be a way of referring to the fact that they are now being incorporated into the full belief about Jesus. They're now immersed in the gospel in such a way that that is now their framework, that is their belief system. Yep, Baptised into the name of Jesus, could be simply referring to that because that's how baptism was used, particularly in the first century and, and going back earlier than that. Either way, the key thing is, They've turned to Jesus and they've received Jesus. And in verse 6, they receive the Holy Spirit. So now they get it. And this is what you want to make sure you've done. You want to make sure you've received Jesus, the forgiveness that comes, and the Holy Spirit that comes to live in you. Now, as a, just a, I'm going to wrap up soon. But as a bit of an aside, just before I wrap up, I want to just make a few comments about verse 6 because I'm hearing that in your home groups this week and as you read this, you come across these verses and it can cause questions to come up. And in verse 6, I'll read it there with you. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, there's some questions that can come from... Some of you got no questions about that. You're fine with it. Others of you have questions that come in this way. Is it the case that tongues and prophecy are the ultimate evidence that a person has received the Holy Spirit? Is that how you can know for sure that you've got the Holy Spirit? And is that what we should expect to happen for everyone so that they've got the Holy Spirit? And that that question emerges is because there is a whole group within Protestant Christianity who adopt that framework and they read verses like this to be saying that that is what should be normative that's what you should expect that anyone here's how it goes you come to belief in Jesus and then later someone lays hands on you receive the spirit and evidence that you've really got the spirit is that you speak in tongues and prophecy that's actually what's happened for them there but the question is should that happen for everyone yeah do you understand the question should we expect that to happen for everyone and some will say yes that's the definition of a real question. Someone's laid their hands on you, and you can speak in tongues and prophecy. Um, the struggle with that, the problem with holding that view, is about so many things. But I'm just going to give you the three top things, OK? The problem with that, um, number one, the book of Acts describes a full variety of conversion experiences, a full variety. Yes, some people speak in tongues and prophesy the minute they become a Christian and receive the Holy Spirit. Others don't. There's a real variety. And after you, you just want to look at a bit of variety, the, the verses just prior to chapter 18, you've got Apollos, who is a disciple of John the Baptist, knows a bit about Jesus, and he actually becomes a proper Christian, moves from almost Christian to real Christian. But the way it happens is um, Um, priscilla and aquila is that right priscilla and aquila bring him to the full knowledge of jesus so he becomes he gets converted there in that moment apollos but there's no record of a particular type of receiving of the holy spirit and there's no tongues and prophecy so that's just one example you get a real variety in the book of acts so i'm not sure you would see this particular event and expect that to be normal for everyone that just kind of wouldn't make sense and if we were to expect that to be normal for everyone you would certainly expect to see it in the apostles teaching in the letters so paul's letters peter's letters james letters you'd expect lots of instructions about here's how it's got to go sequentially like that and you only know you really got the spirit if these but you don't see anything like that in the apostles letters in fact you see the opposite You see Paul talking, and you see particularly at the beginning of Ephesians, Paul says, no, 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 when you come to trust in Jesus, that is when you receive the Spirit in full. It's actually upon belief that you receive the deposit of the Holy Spirit. That's the very thing that actually enables you to come to belief, and you receive it in full. You get the Holy Spirit in full when you come to belief in Jesus. That's what the apostles... That's the framework of the apostles through all the letters in the New Testament. Now, I'm just touching on these things. You might have more questions. Let's chat afterwards if you do or throughout the week or whatever. And the third thing I'd say is this. I think likely what's happening here is it's Paul's apostleship being authenticated. Up to this point, the only time this type of thing's happened is under Peter as he's preached the gospel. And that's basically ringing on from what happened at Pentecost on the first time. And here is the first time you get, in the beginning really of Paul's ministry, ongoingly, and it's really authenticating him as a genuine apostle, though he wasn't around at the start. Um, and and it's evidence that this is the same gospel that was com- that was being preached at Pentecost, and it's the same gospel that's bringing the same salvation, same forgiveness, same Holy Spirit is being received. There you go. There's three quick things. There's a lot more to say about it. But you want to be careful what you do with the book of Acts as far as making it prescriptive for what's normative for every Christian because you get a full variety of experiences here. But I'll finish with this final question. If this is not prescriptive and this is not the ultimate evidence that a person has the Holy Spirit, then how do you know if you do? How do you know if you have got the Holy Spirit? How do you know if you are a genuine Christian, a real Christian, There is a whole array of evidence that the Spirit is at work in a person, but there is one that's the key one, that's the key evidence that you really have received the Holy Spirit. you ready for it? It's that you have come to saving faith in Jesus. It's that you're a person who's turned the whole way and received Him. Because the only way you can actually do that is because you've received the Spirit. Yep. So the one key piece of evidence that you have got the Holy Spirit is that you are someone who can genuinely say, Jesus is my Lord and my Saviour. Yep. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. And I think that little phrase, Jesus is Lord, can be expanded to, Jesus is my Lord and my Saviour, and I've received Him. And if that's you, if you can say, Jesus is my Lord, He is my Saviour, I've been given forgiveness, my relationship with Him has been restored, you have got the Holy Spirit, brother and sister. (laughs) Because that's the only way you can say that. No, Not just the words, but actually that be a truth, the truth for you. If Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, you've got the Holy Spirit. You've got forgiveness. You've got assurance. Now, the whole array of evidences that a person um, is living with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's at work in them, I'll just mention a couple of quick ones, then we'll wrap up. It's likely, if you've got the Holy Spirit, you'll have a growing, ongoing concern about sin and wanting to continue to turn away from sin and honour God. And you'll have an understanding that actually you've been freed from the slavery to sin, so you can turn away and you can say yes to God, and He's the one that's going to empower you to do that. But there'll be this ongoing concern about sin and a real desire to keep turning, keep changing. If you've got the Holy Spirit, likely there will be a growing genuine love for others and particularly the family of God. So evidence that a person has the Holy Spirit will likely be displayed in their attitude towards church, loving, serving, sacrificing for the sake of the good of others. Evidence that you've got the Holy Spirit will be that there will be a growing understanding of the Scriptures Because if the Holy Spirit is living in you, He, the Holy Spirit, will be illuminating your mind and heart, which means opening up your mind and heart, so that when you read the words of this book, you receive them as the very words of your living God. And it's not just a book that you're eternally confused by. You're coming to understand it and grow in it. And and the big thing is you're hearing God speak to you in the Scriptures. That's evidence. That's one of the key impacts of the Holy Spirit. It helps you understand the Scriptures. Evidence you've got the Holy Spirit is that you're growing in your desire to obey the Word of God. Evidence you've got the Holy Spirit is that you're growing in your ability to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. If If the Spirit lives in you, then His fruit, will be being displayed in your life. Yeah, That's going to be happening. yeah. And ultimately your hope of change and growth and being able to be used for the Lord is that the Holy Spirit lives in you, strengthening you for that. So do you want the Holy Spirit? Make sure you've received Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. You don't go after the Holy Spirit, you go after Jesus and you get the Holy Spirit. Being a real Christian is more than just turning from sin to try to live a godly life. It's turning all the way to Jesus and receiving what he has done for you on the cross. I'm going to pray a prayer now and it's particularly for those of you who are honest enough and humbled enough to go, yeah, I think, I think I'm think i an almost Christian I want to do something about that. I want to turn this full way. I'm going to pray a prayer about this, this, the ne- the rest of the turning, the, to, to get the whole way to Jesus and receive salvation. But I wonder whether it's a prayer that we can all end up praying together anyway. Because I think throughout my life I've con- I've turned to Jesus about ten thousand times, and I want to keep making sure I've done it. So I'm just going to keep doing it. And so I wonder whether we can all pray this prayer together to actually turn to Jesus. But particularly for those of you who might think, yeah, I'm doing this for the first time. Why don't we bow our heads and why don't we pray this together and then we'll sing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to do more than simply turn from sin and attempt to live a godly life. I want to turn all the way to Jesus. I want to see my sin paid for on the cross. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to trust in my salvation. I want you to restore me into relationship with you through Jesus. Please come and live in me by the Holy Spirit. Please strengthen me and empower me to live a new life, to honour you. In the mighty name of Jesus, Amen. Amen.